series. And just another announcement, um, for those of you who have taken baby bottles to fill up with change for the Pregnancy Care Center, these are due uh, next Sunday. So just to let you know, uh, bring those in next Sunday uh, and give them to my wife, Peggy, who's downstairs, um, and she'll turn them in. And thank you so much. It's been a wonderful way to support an uh, excellent Christian ministry in our city. We are uh, continuing in the book of Acts. We're going to dig in today to the meat of the story in chapter 19 of what goes on in the city of Ephesus as the gospel comes. And very exciting, very exciting story, very exciting accounts of God doing wonders through the gospel to help perhaps us relate to what we're going to read. Imagine, if you will, with me. Uh, this scenario, someone uh, goes into the city of New York, somebody, a, a leading theologian and church planter, maybe somebody like Tim Keller, if you happen to know him, uh, goes into New York City and starts teaching and proclaiming the gospel, starts teaching and proclaiming Christ, and ends up, uh, there's just people attracted to hearing this uh, man proclaim Christ. God is doing wonders, uh, and, and our, our person, we'll call him Tim, goes to the Madison Square Garden and starts teaching and proclaiming Christ in the Madison Square Garden and does that for two years every day uh, on off hours when he can in the Madison Square Garden. And it's full. And people come in and they're hearing the gospel. They're being transformed. There are leaders being raised up, disciples made, and, and from this teaching and proclamation that's going on in the Madison Square Garden, people start coming in from miles around and start getting sent out as well. That there are church plants sent out to surrounding cities as well. And as God does this, as God uh, works through the power of the gospel, there are millions of conversions, millions of conversions. And and there are uh, great healings going on and deliverance and miracles there are churches that are planted through all, all the major cities in the Northeast. Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, D.C., and all the other smaller cities as well. There's churches planted, millions converted, leaders raised up that will continue to serve the church for years to come. The economy in the Northeast itself actually shifts because of the impact of the gospel through this ministry. And, and things like the drug trade and pornography and so forth, and even just the spending patterns of the people shifts because of the impact of the gospel. A spiritual, social, economic earthquake comes and shakes the whole Northeast, emanating emanating out from New York City through this ministry. That is the equivalent of what goes on in chapter 19. That is the equivalent, the modern-day equivalent of what goes on in chapter 19. Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the world of the day. It's a quarter of a million people, uh, which was large. you just got to multiply everything by 100 or so or more. Uh, When you think of the ancient world versus the modern world, it's the fourth largest city. It's the seat of the regional government. It has uh, Asiarchs, these these rulers that are uh, directly under the emperor, I believe, who rule over the city and the whole area. They keep port. All the roads in the province of Asia basically lead to or from Ephesus. In Ephesus is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great temple of Artemis. I think we have some pictures to show up. 
on this, Brendan. Uh, that is a, a picture of the Temple of Artemis, and it is a center for the worship of Artemis or Diana, and it really actually predates, uh, the, the local deity predates Diana and Artemis. When the Greek world took over, they called her Artemis, but it's actually a local deity, that it's a fertility deity, a really bizarre-looking idol in the lower left. I didn't want to show a big picture because it's really bizarre, but that was uh, the idol worshipped here. And it was the temple of Artemis, a great temple. It was world-renowned. And Ephesus is a place that houses this temple. And the economy of Ephesus, in many ways, is built around this temple and built around the commerce, the, the, the religious commerce related to that. Ephesus, as well as being a large and significant influential city, is a center of occult and spiritual darkness. There were... Of the, in that day, what they called the Ephesian writings, they were these uh, spells that were written, and, and you could put in a little locket and have, and they would ward off evil, and, and, and they were called Ephesian writings. So it's a center of the occults. It's not uh, on the top ten list of the places to go to plant a church. Uh, it's, it's a spiritually unfriendly place, but it's to this place that Paul goes, sent by the Lord. And so we're going to read about it. We're going to read about what happens. We're going to learn from this passage. We're going to think about how this relates to us as well today. For God's Word is living, and He speaks to us through it. So let's pray and ask Him that we might observe and enjoy the wonder of what we see, but also learn and be changed as a church as well. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have chosen to communicate to us today, through Acts 19, the wonder of what went on in Ephesus. And Lord, we're, we, we look to you. We need you to speak to us. Would you transform our lives as we encounter your word today? Would you work in us and through us and raise us up for your great, glorious purposes? We might live in light of your word above all things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start in verse 8 of chapter 19 and read through the entirety of the chapter. Paul's come to Ephesus. Uh, there's already some Christian activity going on there. Uh, early in our story, we saw he had left Priscilla and Aquila there. There were others that were working. And uh, Paul comes back, and in verse 8, it says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, 
mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus! Who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that, can be, that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. God's word from Acts chapter 19. What an amazing story. 
in Ephesus. What an amazing story uh, of the gospel going forth. Uh, there's just so much happening there, um, so, much, so many wonderful things. And what I want to do is just take some time to, to quickly outline the story and then from that draw some points um, to, to learn from the story. Uh, and, and, and as we go to think about how to apply these truths. So we have Paul coming uh, into Ephesus. And as usual, he goes to the synagogue and he proclaims Christ there. And he does that for uh, a number of months. I think it was at three months, it says. And then they uh, reject the gospel. And Paul withdraws from the synagogue and goes into this local public venue. Uh, we don't know and the particulars of this lecture hall, but it was probably a prominent public venue, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He goes there, he takes the disciples with, them, with him. So he's instructing uh, his disciples, he's instructing his leaders, and he's d- instructing the whole people. Anyone who would come, Greeks and Jews, are coming to this lecture hall of Tyrannus. Uh, it, it probably is likely that he's doing that in off hours in this lecture hall, and he's doing it daily, and he does it for two years. As a result, it says, all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord. All the residents of Asia, all, this whole province, maybe a half a million uh, people or so, 500,000, maybe more than that. The city of Ephesus itself was a quarter of a million. Uh, the whole area of, of Asia was a region about the size of all of New England. It's a big, pretty big region. And it says the whole area hears the word of the Lord. Now, what we can learn elsewhere is that uh, there were churches that were planted out of this effort in Ephesus. Uh, Epaphras plants a church in Colossae. It looks like the churches in the book of Revelation, which are the, uh, the, the churches, the seven churches around that area, all probably came out of Ephesus. The whole region was affected. There was church planting that went on. Uh, it's not shown in the text here, but we can look elsewhere in Scripture where it talks about these individuals and, and what they did. So the word was was going out from Ephesus, affecting Ephesus and and affecting people's lives, affecting the disciples, affecting leaders, so that they were propelled outward as well to plant and to tell others, so that the whole province heard the word of the Lord. We know that from not only Luke's words, but Demetrius' words as well. The effect of the gospel was so profound that the economy shifted in the area to the point where the tradesmen in, in the trades related to the temple were affected and rioted. The effect was profound. There was power accompanying the proclamation of the gospel. Extraordinary miracles done by Paul. Uh, handkerchiefs and, and aprons that touched his skin were brought and touched other people, and there was healing and demons driven out. By the way, this is an extraordinary miracle. Not a common day one you see on the TV and you can buy yourself uh, if you give a $10 donation. These are extraordinary miracles here to be understood that way. There was power going out. And then we see in the end this riot. And that riot actually, we may look at it and think of it negatively, but it's actually a, a positive thing because the officials came and basically dismissed the rioters. Said, guys, there, there is no problem here. Go home. And that's a good thing, so that they were not allowed to to oppose the gospel in an organized way. So it's a victory, really, in Ephesus. We can study history and learn elsewhere that this this gospel proclamation in Ephesus was so significant, it, it totally changed Ephesus. And Ephesus actually ended up becoming a center of Christianity for centuries. When, the, when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D., uh, it looks like the, 
leaders in the Jerusalem church actually transplanted to Ephesus. Apostle John ended up being there. It's understood that he took care of Mary, uh, Jesus' mother, there in Ephesus as well. So this, this city was turned upside down. It was turned upside down. And Luke gives a summary, summary statement for this work in Ephesus and really for the work in the third missionary journey as well. He says in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's the title of the message, The Prevailing Word, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to look at how the word prevailed mightily. I want to take time to look at what the word itself is. What is this word? What is the word of the Lord? Uh, It's important that we understand that. So we're going to look at what is this prevailing word. We're going to look at how this word prevailed in proclamation. It is through the proclamation of the word that God did all these things. And then we're going to look at how the word prevailed with power. And then we're going to think about how to apply that in the Merrimack Valley. And we're going to try to do all that in 20 minutes. I don't know how it became 10 past 11 so quickly. Yeah, we need a miracle of time. A miracle of, of words. So let's look at first what is this prevailing word. What is the prevailing word? What does it mean when Luke says the word of the Lord? He uses that phrase often in the book of Acts, the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was preached. And he uses it interchangeably with the gospel. So the word of the Lord that prevails is not just generic Bible verses. Paul didn't get there and, and preach uh, Colossians through, I mean, uh, Proverbs 3, uh, good verses in Proverbs. He didn't go there and, and, and say, you know, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops, and your, you know, that, that wonderful verse. He, though that's a good verse, he, that wasn't it. Maybe he probably taught that verse, but, but that wasn't the core. The core of what he brought, the word of the Lord, is the gospel. It's the good news of Christ. That's important. For when, when we see this phrase and when we handle the word, to understand that there is a core to the words. When we live by the word, when we proclaim the word, there's a core to it. And if that core doesn't function as the core, we lose our way. The core is the gospel. It's the good news of Christ. Everything in Scripture either flows to that core or from that core. If there's no core to your Scripture, then your Scripture is detached, disconnected. And, and, and won't be as effective because you haven't treated it as God would have you treated. There's a core. It's the good news of Christ. We use the word gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And gospel is from an old English word. And sadly for a lot of us, it has lost its meaning. It comes from the combination of, in old English of good and spell. We don't use the word spell. It makes you think of, of witchcraft perhaps. But spell, was a, it's a proclamation. It's news. So it means good news or good, good proclamation. The good news of Jesus Christ. That is the core. That is the word of the Lord. And that good news is this, simply that Christ died for sinners. Now there's a lot more to all what those words mean. Uh, that the Christ, Jesus, is God as a man. He's the infinite, eternal, holy God in flesh as a man. He's God and man together. That this Christ, this King, this Anointed One, lived a righteous life and suffered and died on the cross for sins, for the sins of His people. He bore the sins. God Himself died on the cross to pay for the sins of His people. 
And we know that he did to the point of paying for sins and satisfying the holy justice of God that requires that sin be dealt with. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin and say, well, let's just forget about it all. He's just. And his justice will be satisfied. And he has provided in Christ the satisfaction for justice for all those who would turn and believe. And so he, he satisfied justice on the cross, paying for our sins, to the point in his obedience that the Father received the offering and raised him from the dead as the ultimate king, the Savior and king. And he now reigns with God. He reigns and rules and he's returning. That's a big expanded version of the good news, all those things. The core of it is the cross itself. Christ died for sinners. Christ died for sin on the cross. And this truth, this reality, this proclamation is the core of the word of the Lord. It's the core of the scriptures. Everything flows to it and from it. So Paul's proclamation in Ephesus was this and all the things that flowed to it and from it as well. But it would have been clear to everybody the centrality of the gospel in Paul's proclamation. We know that from his writings. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for Jews and for Gentiles. The gospel is the power of God. It is the power of God for the salvation, for, for the rescue from sin, for all who believe. And, and with that is the transformation of the very universe itself. We can read Colossians 1 and see that in Christ in this work of the cross, that he's reconciling men to himself, all those who would believe, and he's actually finishing the work of the universe. He's transforming and completing what he set out to do. So the gospel is the most powerful event in all of history, in all of the universe. It's more powerful than any supernova. It's more powerful than the initial creation event itself. The gospel is the power of God to bring cataclysmic change. It is the place where the, the irresistible force of God's redemptive love and purposes, the irresistible force of God's love and purposes meets the immovable object of his perfect justice. There is a collision at the cross between his, his irresistible force of his love and purposes and the, the immovable object of his holy justice, which is perfect. They collide at the cross, and there's a cataclysmic collision and transformation from that work of the cross. It is the power of God above everything else. The gospel is the power of God. And we must hear that and understand it and grasp it and understand our Bible that everything in this book flows to or from the gospel. That's what's going on in Ephesus. Paul is bringing this, this atomic bomb of the gospel to Ephesus. This central and most important proclamation and reality. This truth that transforms everything. We learn from this chapter in the Bible that the gospel prevails. The gospel will have its way. It prevails. It prevails in power. It will finish its work. The gospel prevails. The gospel is not an entryway into the Christian life to be forgotten as we move on to other things. We don't come through the gospel. Yes, now I'm forgiven. Now I go on to other stuff. Now the Christian life is about missions or evangelism. Or now the Christian life is, is about 
the church, or now the Christian life is about spiritual gifts, or whatever it may be. That, that's a faulty understanding of the Christian life and a faulty understanding of the gospel. It is a very damaging understanding of Christianity to individuals, to churches, to Christianity as a whole, because it denies and distorts the biblical testimony and it deprives us of the power to live in the Lord. It deprives us of the power for transformation in our lives. It deprives us of the power for true love for one another. It deprives us of the power to propel us out to share the the good news and to see change. We must understand that this is the core. It's not a gateway. It's not like we walk into this valley called Christianity through the gate of the gospel and we just kind of walk and climb these other mountains of Christianity, the the evangelism and, and missions, all important things whatever those mountains might be. No, no, the gospel itself is the mountain. It is the mountain. It is the peak of the mountain. It is the substance of the mountain. And every other aspect of Christianity is a sub-peak that helps get us to that peak. The gospel is the central core. David Pryor says, We never therefore move on from the cross of Christ, only into a more profound understanding of the cross, the cross being the core. For us as a church, we have to, we have to put this... Uh, As our mission statement, I think we have this to show, our mission statement is to be wholeheartedly loving God and one another by worshiping, witnessing, and walking in the good news of Jesus Christ for all of life. We are to love God and love one another. We do it through the the components of witness, worship, and walk. But the ground, the foundation of it all, the substance of it all, is centered on the good news of Jesus Christ that applies to all of life. It's how we define ourselves, how we define our mission as we seek to honor the Scriptures. The gospel is the core. It is the word of the Lord. It is the gospel that prevails. It prevails through proclamation. We see that in this section. Paul proclaims the gospel. When he comes to Ephesus, does he come in and and, and set up a soup kitchen for the Ephesians? Does he go and meet with the mayor? First thing, I've got to go in and meet with the mayor. I've got to make some political connections. I've got to set up a soup kitchen and help feed the poor. Now, these are all good things, by the way. I'm not, I'm not disparaging them. Did he start up some sort of after-school mentoring program to reach the lives of the young Ephesian people? Did he start a men's ministry, uh, a women's ministry? Did he, did he design a float for the annual per- Ephesian parade to, to, to talk about Christianity? No, he didn't do any of those things. Now, those, by the way, can be very good things, but, but under the most important things. What did Paul do? His method, understanding the gospel was the core, his central method was to proclaim the gospel. And that's how he oriented himself. He went to the synagogue, proclaimed Christ. He went, and then when he had to leave there, he went somewhere else and proclaimed Christ. He proclaimed Christ to believers. He proclaimed Christ to unbelievers. He proclaimed Christ to whomever he could. He proclaimed the things that flow to it, the things that flow from it. He proclaimed Christ, and from that, the power of God had its way and changed people's lives, and raised up leaders, and discipled people. And he did it for two years. And probably probably hundreds of thousands of lives were altered and changed by it. Churches were planted. All these wonderful things happened as he proclaimed the gospel. And that is our commitment as well as a church. Our prime method for being the church is to proclaim the gospel. And it's not just my job to proclaim the gospel. It is my job to teach you and equip you to proclaim the gospel, to teach you about the gospel so you proclaim it one to another. 
we celebrated communion. What is, what is communion? Communion is proclaiming the gospel to ourselves in a powerful way we encounter the Lord. It's proclaiming the gospel. What is fellowship? It's proclaiming the gospel one to another, reminding each other of the gospel and gospel implications. Fellowship must center on proclaiming the gospel. Evangelism, of course, must center on proclaiming the gospel. We as a church take this approach. Now, there are, are, are things we can do, secondary things that we can do, and if we're not careful, we might think those secondary things are primary in our method to reach the area. It is easy to look at businesses that are out there and think, you know what, they're doing certain things to grow their business. They're doing certain things. They're, they're working with the market. They know their market. They know their demographics. They they, they communicate with the market, they, they answer felt needs, they make people interested in what's going on, they, give, they work with people's motivations to get them to be self-motivated to come, and, and all those things in business that, are, that are, can be valid and, and are important parts of business. We could look at that and say, you know, look at these businesses, how successful they are, let's do the same thing. But we wouldn't be successful. We might add people to our church. We might get a crowd. We might get customers, but all we're going to have is customers. All we're going to have is a crowd. If we want to truly touch lives, if we want to truly love people, if we want to truly see change that lasts beyond some product that wears out, that lasts for eternity, the gospel must be, the proclamation of the gospel must be central to our methods as a church. Paul knew that. And live that way. We would be foolish to do other things. Now, we may do parades for the annual Santa Parade. Actually, I'd love to do a float next year for the Santa Parade for Havel. If you're in Havel, you know the Santa Parade. It's a great way. We want to do a soup kitchen. We are actually still looking for people to help lead our loaves and fishes ministry. We're going to do men's ministry. We're going to do some of these other things. But if the gospel is central and the proclamation of the gospel is our central method, then all these things must point that direction. They all must ultimately point people to Christ. They all must ultimately help us proclaim Christ and gear that way. And if they don't do that, let's not do it. Let's not do it. If we want to see the sort of change that went on in Ephesus, we need to walk in the principles that Paul does in reaching Ephesus. That is our intention. The gospel prevails. It prevails through proclamation. Third point, the gospel prevails with power. It prevails with power. And and the most powerful thing that happens in this chapter, the most powerful thing that happens in this chapter is, is not that the wild stuff with demons being delivered, out of people, people being delivered of demons. It's not the, the healings, the, the, the handkerchief healings. It's, it's not these other things. It's not this, this riot that gets settled. That's not the most powerful thing in the chapter. The most powerful thing is conversion of sinners, from sinners to saints, being changed from an orientation of I want it my way or no other way, to I want it the Lord's way. I've returned from my sin. I've turned from self-sufficiency. And now my faith is in the Savior. He's my champion. He's my Savior. He's my King. And I want to follow Him and love Him all my days. I want to learn to do that. Conversion is a change in that orientation. It doesn't mean you're perfect at it. And you're, you'll, until heaven, you'll be far from it. 
Now, we all are far from it. But there's a change in orientation, a wonderful miracle of the Holy Spirit. As the gospel is proclaimed, we encounter God through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, and He does something. There's new life in us and a change in our orientation, and we say, I don't like sin anymore. I don't want it. I want Jesus more than sin. That's the fundamental difference in conversion. I can believe Jesus. I want Jesus. And that's the most powerful thing. That's the the most amazing thing that that goes with the gospel. That is the power that goes with the gospel is conversions. And there are probably hundreds of thousands of conversions that go on in this chapter. Luke doesn't give us a number. But think about it. You've got a population in Ephesus of 250,000, population in, in all of Asia of maybe twice that or more. And they all hear the gospel. They all hear the gospel. And, and there's so many conversions that the, the economy shifts. Can you imagine that? That many conversions, the economy shifts, spending habits change because of conversions. And it, it says that, and I'll talk about the story in a little bit, when, when uh, there's this whole thing when they get rid of their occult stuff and they burn it, it it's, uh, what is the number? How much? 50,000 50, pieces of silver. A piece of silver was a day's wage. All right, day's wage is 100 bucks, maybe. Right? Uh, that's kind of cheap, but some of us maybe that would be good to get 100 bucks a day. Uh, 100 bucks. So, so, so do the math. Five million dollars. Five million dollars worth of books. How many books is that? That's a lot of books. That means there's a lot of people with the books. I doubt there was one guy who had a five million dollar book collection that he burned. There were a lot of people. This was an area steeped in the occult steeped in spiritual darkness. And, and, and these were Christians when they were encountered uh, by the truth of the gospel themselves. They came and burned their book. There was $5 million worth of books. That's a lot of people. 10,000 is, is a conservative number. I think 100,000 is more indicative of, of the amount of people there. Not everybody necessarily was burning a book, but if you think through the math and do the engineering stuff that I do, uh, you, you'll, you'll see it's about 100,000 people. Conversions. Dramatic, life-changing conversions. And there's no greater miracle than a conversion because all the other miracles, they don't last. Healings are great. Well, deliverance lasts, I guess. That one, that one lasts if you're a believer. But, but this one, conversion, lasts forever. It's a miracle that doesn't ever get undone. It's the greatest miracle. And that's what happens in, in Ephesus, this wonderful power of God with the gospel conversions. But we see lots of other stuff. Uh, Luke tells us God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, uh, that, that even handkerchiefs or pieces of cloth, these aprons that touched his skin were carried to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. It's just wonderful miracles to the life of Paul. Wonderful miracles. Uh, and these are things that there, there's no reason in Scripture to point and say that these miracles have ceased. Nothing in Scripture. And there's nothing in Scripture that says they were, they were only related to apostles. Nothing in Scripture, because we can look elsewhere and see non-apostles doing similar miracles. These miracles are for today, and that's important for us to understand. But on the other hand, it's important for us to understand that Paul was an unusual guy. He had an unusual ministry. There's no one like Paul. Paul is gone from the scene. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. There were 12 apostles. There was Paul. And there's never going to be any others. And they had a significant role in redemption history, and they had a significant anointing from the Holy Spirit. So we don't set up a handkerchief ministry after we read Acts 19. 
All right? That's why we don't do it. That's why the stuff we see on TV doesn't make sense. This is extraordinary miracles through an apostle. God might do that. I'm not saying he doesn't, and I know of uh, at least one story where he's done that. I'm not ruling that out, but that is not the norm. But gifts and power with the gospel and healings with the gospel, yes, we're to live that way and expect that. Perhaps in a, a lesser way than Paul. Maybe not. God might work in power, and I, and I know of, of stuff in other parts of the world and in, in our midst as well, wonderful miracles that happen. But, but I think this is how we're to approach it. But it's great power. People are healed. Demons are delivered. Then we read this, this story, we, this, this account of what goes on with these Jewish exorcists. And, and so the gospel is going forward and people are hearing about the gospel and these guys, these Jewish exorcists, are not interested in the gospel. They're interested in keeping their own, own way, but they recognize there's power here. And so they, in their business, they get paid to drive out demons. And in Ephesus, they had plenty of work because uh, it's so spiritually dark. They had plenty of work, and so they have a new method, they think. You know, hey, this name of Jesus is powerful stuff, so let's kind of throw that in there in this exorcism. And, and uh, what happens is like something out of a horror movie, isn't it? I mean, they, they try this thing, and the demon speaks back. You know, uh, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, who are you? And then he leaps on them. So I don't know what it would have looked like. The special effects would have been amazing. Leaps on them, uh, masters them, overpowers them. He just beats, beats them to pulp, uh, cleans their clocks, and they run out of there naked and wounded. It's, it's, it's horrific. But what is the result? The whole city hears about it. They hear about this story, and they realize the name of Jesus is not something you play games with. The name of Jesus is extolled. The non-Christians understand this is not something you play games with. And it puts the fear of God in the people of God. Who may have been thinking, you know, well, I believe in Jesus, but, you know, he, he's kind of like how I handled Artemis. You know, I, have my, I used to have my little Artemis shrine, and when things were bad, I looked to the Artemis. And now Jesus is kind of a pocket deity for me uh, that I put in my pocket, and he does what I want. And, and there might have been genuine faith there. I'm not saying there wasn't. They're called believers. But they didn't understand who Jesus was. And it put the fear of God in them. And they realized we can't be playing the games we've been playing. We can't play it both ways. It put the fear of God in them. And so they realized we've got to get rid of our occult stuff. They came and they confessed openly the hidden things that they had been practicing. They confessed it openly, and they burned their books. They wanted nothing more to do with it. So God used that, and, and really the proclamation of the gospel, even through that, to bring change to believers and to transform their lives. And, and I like to think we don't know all this, the specifics. We don't know when it happened in the course, but I like to think of what God did even through that moment as he purged his people of idolatry. And I can't help but guess that some of the things that happened in the gospel going forward came from that particular incident, that particular experience as they were purged of their idolatry and they realized this name, Jesus, is, is above every name. He's not a pocket idol. He is the Lord, the Lord of the universe and the only Savior. And I now want to live for Him. I want to be pure and free from my idolatry to live for Him and to trust Him and to enjoy Him and to serve Him always. And I I like to think that some of the church plants perhaps came from that. Some of the teams that went out with the planters maybe were people who had burned their books and now were going. And there's some people here 
that God has things for you if you would burn your books. If you would stop playing games with Christianity and stop thinking that the name of Jesus is something you can kind of play with. When things are tough, you pull out the pocket idol and you pray. That's not how it works. He's the Lord. He's the King. He's the only Savior. He's greater than a pocket idol. He's God and He will have it no other way. You don't want to, you don't want to keep things hidden because it's going to get exposed sooner or later. Sooner or later, everyone will know what has been hidden. So why not divulge it and turn from it now and receive the freedom that comes? Can you imagine the freedom that came? They put away their idols and now there's freedom to enjoy Christ, to not be bound by the guilt and the hiding of sin, to seek help and to move forward in the gospel. Wonderful power of changed lives through the gospel occurred here in Ephesus, and it is occurring now as well. If the band could come up as we conclude this morning. The gospel prevails. The gospel prevails in proclamation. The gospel prevails with power. And we see this amazing experience in Ephesus. Revival turns this place upside down. The gospel has its way. The gospel is proclaimed. The gospel comes with power. And the same thing that happens in Acts 9 is going on today. And so when we read this, it's not just for history. It's an amazing story to be enjoyed in and of itself to see what God did. But He's still doing it. Do we think of our own situation in light of Acts 19? Do we think that the gospel prevails still? Do we believe it? Do we believe that the gospel is to be proclaimed as our central method? Do we believe that God is going to come with power as the gospel is proclaimed and bring mighty changes? Do we believe that God is interested and fully able, as His people walk in these things, to to turn a society upside down? Last night, a church met here, and they're meeting here. a sister church, a Portuguese-speaking Brazilian church, is using our building. We, we thought as leaders that it would be good to serve the kingdom by allowing them to use the building on off hours. They meet in the night, uh, Saturday and Sunday night, Sunday night. They met here last night, and uh, Peg and I were here, and we hope as a, uh, as a church to be able to worship with them at, as a church at some point. But God is doing things among Brazilians in our country and in Brazil. Do do you guys know some of the things that are happening? In 1890, there were 1% Christians in Brazil, 140,000 evangelical believers, those that would understand the gospel as central and necessary, whatever denomination they might be of. There were 1% of the population, 140,000. Today, there are 30 million believers in Brazil, 30 million, 20% of the population, and they expect at the rate of growth that by 2020, it's only nine years away, there'll be 50% believers. New England, there's roughly 1% believers, give or take a few percent. One in a hundred people you might meet on the street, you would expect to be a believer. Can you believe that God, through the power of the gospel, can change that? So that one in five are believers, or one in two, 
or even 9 in 10. And some of the revivals that have come, that's the result. 9 in 10, the majority, come to Christ. That's what this story should instruct us in. Now, we can't control those things. We can't control the response. And it might be in God's providence that we're faithful. We, we keep the gospel central. We proclaim the gospel. We trust God for the power of the gospel. And we all get put to death for our faith. That could happen. We can't guarantee the results. But the God of Acts 19 is our God who lives now. So let us live this way as well. And trust God and ask Him until the day we die. God, would you do this? Would you do, that, do this in our church and through our church and in your churches in New England? Would you magnify your name? Would you lift up the gospel? Would you change our lives? Would you use us in this? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Acts 19. Thank you for this amazing story. Thank you for the work you did in Ephesus. Thank you for your mercy on all those sinners to rescue them, to bring them to yourself. Thank you for the fruit that poured out of Ephesus for years and years to come. Thank you for how you transformed the Roman world and the West. And now today you are transforming the whole world through the gospel. Lord, we remembered the victorious failure of Christ in communion today. May we live in light of this, expecting that you will do your work, that you will continue to draw and work in the world. You will continue to to empower the proclamation of your gospel. May we live asking and so living with the gospel at the center to see revival, maturity in Christ, and missionaries sent out from here to the whole world. Instruct us and train us from Acts 19 for these purposes and for your glory. Do above and beyond all we could ask or imagine, we pray in Christ's name.